Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. In case you didn't know, the IAI have teamed up with Routledge to offer our listeners a 10% discount across their whole range of books. Just follow the link in the podcast description for details. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Philosophy for Our Times, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. In today's podcast, we'll be looking at what makes you, you. Does a narrative of the self exist and how useful is it for our daily lives? Well, good morning, and thank you for choosing to come to this debate on the story of I. But did you choose to come today? How much of your decisions really are you, or how much are influenced by a narrative? Who is the I that writes the story of ourselves, and how do we choose the narratives of our lives? Are our choices more like reflexes and decisions all an illusion? Or do we create both who we are and what we want to do? Well, joining me this morning to discuss this fascinating topic, on my right is Mark Salter. Mark is a consultant psychiatrist and author of Outdoor Psychiatry. He spent two decades working in acute psychiatric wards. To my left is John Cottingham, professor of philosophy of religion, and to my far left, is Richard Morgan. Richard is a science fiction and fantasy author and also writes uh, video games and comics. So starting off with uh, Mark, can you give us your take on this? Yeah, uh, there's an old ancient Greek saying, we walk backwards into the future. That is to say that we only know where we're going in terms of where we've come from. That our experience and the things that amass inside our heads, we'll come to what that might mean in a minute, are the things that tell us where we're going to go next. Tories read The Telegraph, Guardian readers read The Guardian. And so we're familiarising ourselves with a framework that's already available to us. Now that's interesting, because it automatically tells us that what we've stored in our heads, memory, is a fundamental part of narrative. Now what is memory? There's a doctor who spends a lot of his time looking after people with malfunctioning, not necessarily damaged, but different brains, we realise that memory is fundamentally important to who we think we are, because it's where we store things. But memory isn't a store. Memory is basically a constantly reliving, reinvented thing that is changing all the time. When you remember something, you don't simply retrieve a piece of information. What you do is you revisit the way you remembered it last time and twist it a bit more. Granny's turquoise jumper becomes emerald green. Years later, it's blue. Your favourite perfume is always Chanel, but hang on, this, isn't, this, is, this is something different. This is, this is white linen. These things change very, very subtly, not at small levels of perfume and things, but at the levels of belief and ideas. Now, if you actually look at the brain, you'll realise that memory is actually very closest to the ancient, most fundamental, if you like, primeval parts of the brain that are to do with emotion. I want to say something really strange that might feel odd. Memory is emotion. 
but with a thing strapped on, and that's language. Because one thing that marks human beings out, uniquely amongst all other creatures on this planet, is their ability to spin words. Birds build nests, humans build sentences. Now, a sentence is an essential way of communicating language to other people. The purpose of language is to rub along and create this phenomenal thing called civilization. So for most of the millions of years that we've been separating off from chimpanzees and our other primate cousins, we've come to use this language, well, for most of it, as a way of relating to each other. But the narrative, the story I tell about myself, is vulnerable to emotion, and it's also vulnerable to the incredibly complicated world in which we've connected and grown up. Our mothers, our fathers, our families, our myths, our ancestors, our wisdoms, all these shared things that we call culture and value. And for the last 500 years, Western civilization is doing something pretty daft. It's getting lost up its own intellectual backside. The me, the I, has become the focus story, and psychiatry hasn't helped. Thanks to Sigmund Freud and a few others, we now see ourselves as these bundles of conflicting, defending processes inside this thing called the ego, struggling at war with the id and some dodgy contract with society and all these kind of things. But we're losing contact with the context of who we used to be and might have been. And that means that as we fall back on language increasingly, the word is standing in for the thing. Because the problem with language is the minute you name something, you're saying what it is, me, I am this person. But the minute I say blue, I'm saying that's not red, green, yellow, indigo. I'm excluding. The choice of a word is a way of narrowing things down. And Western civilization is in danger of narrowing identity into a simple, cheesy story. And hence the tedious replication we seem to see again and again and again. I was abused by my father, that's where I am. Prozac made me a subway bomber. We see these cheesy, stupid simplicities and now served up to us as narrative. Narrative is an emotional thing and it is at its richest and best when we're constantly shifting and reinventing by having raw emotion. And emotion usually hurts. Think about it, there are five big emotions. Anger, guilt, disgust, shame, sadness, make it six, joy. Five of those are negative. Most of life is about responding to pain and becoming richer. And our narratives are better when we're in that state of emotion. Thank you. Thank you. Now I'm going to turn to John Cottingham. Clearly we change a lot during our lives. And we have different views when we're 70 from the views we had when we were four, or 20 or 40. Uh, and obviously we change physically. But I take the kind of traditional view, which goes right back to Aristotle, that despite all the change, there is an enduring subject of change, a substance, if you like, a substrate, the unique I or you that makes you, you, or me, me. And actually, I think biology confirms this, that even a plant or an, or an animal has a unique genetic signature which gives it identity throughout its life from birth to death. But humans are special, although we have a lot in common with the rest of the biological realm. We are moral entities. And by that, I mean we have to make decisions during our lives and we have, hopefully, to improve ourselves by learning from our many mistakes. We grow ideally into something better. And that process of change, of growth, of moral maturity would, I think, make no sense unless there was some kind of narrative. 
unless we had a sense of ourselves as coming from a past and moving towards a future which is hopefully better. So, so that sense of narrative is crucial for the project of maturity and growth, which I think we're all embarked on, whether we fully make it explicit or not. Now, philosophers who write about ethics often, I think, give a very atomistic picture. They focus on isolated actions and decisions. But actually, any meaningful action only takes its place in a fabric which has a past and a future. So to have that sense of narrative story is basic to who we are. Now, who is it that writes that story? Who is this I? Well, I think there are two mistakes. One is the deterministic one of thinking we're just completely programmed by our genes or our upbringing, so there's no real me taking decisions. It's just a, a rolling out of a determined, causally determined process. That's one mistake. At the other end, there's a mistake of thinking I'm some kind of pure, rational soul, sort of angelic ego that's cut free from the messy world of biology and society. I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. We have to acknowledge our biological nature, our social nature, but in virtue of the capacities we inherited via our genes and our upbringing, we have, and we can't get out of it, uh, that unique responsibility for determining the shape of our lives by our decisions. So we have sufficient freedom to be responsible for our actions. Some philosophers have thought there was no real I. David Hume, the 18th century atheist philosopher, thought that there was no true substance or self. And more recently, a lot of philosophers, for example, Sam Harris, the, one of the new atheists, has talked about the brain being a matter of many different modules or parts. So he thinks the eye is just an illusion. But all this brain science stuff certainly shows there are many elements in the brain, but none of that shows that, that you are not you, that you don't have that unique sense of yourself as an identical human being over time. So we can't escape our, our individuality, our freedom, and in a way our duty, our destiny to realize ourselves and to make something of ourselves which shows moral improvement uh, and which moves us towards being better in the future. Yeah, I mean, I feel a bit of a fraud whenever So that's our narrative. Thank you. Because I, you know, Richard, you last but not least. Distinguished uh, medical pr uh, practitioner, you have distinguished philosopher, and then you have a guy who makes shit up for a living. <laughs> and um, if you work in creating fiction, as I do, one of the things you come to hate over time <laughs> is Hollywood. Um, and one of the things about Hollywood is its vast idiot simplicity. Uh, its insistence that things must be dumbed down to the level where an eight-year-old child can understand them. And one of the things that you will very, very often find is, is with characters is motivation, or motivation, as it's called in Hollywood. Uh, the idea that a character does something because of an inciting incident. Uh, something motivates the actions of this character. And I don't know about you, but my life is not like that at all. Um, Generally speaking, I know that I'm on when I'm writing if I can't work out exactly why a character is doing something. I can approximate, I can guess, I can say, yeah, well, it might be because of this aspect of his, of his background, it might be because this has just happened to him, it might be a number of things. And I think 
The problem really comes down to this issue of simplicity versus complexity. I think there is a, a drive within humans to, to make stuff simple, to make life easier, if you like. And it just won't wash. I mean, don't get me wrong, I think the Western way is by far the best. I don't think what we had before Western philosophy and, and science got started is, is in any way an alternative. Because those are the simplistic narratives. You know, I am who I am because I am a citizen of this city, and if you're a citizen of that city over there, I'm going to kick the shit out of you and murder your children. Um, you know, that, those very simplistic narratives are actually what have carried the human race through most of its, uh, what we could call its infancy. And I'd say that post-Enlightenment thought is essentially the next stage. It's where we're going next. But we will need to take along with us um, a sense of humility and also a sense of inexactitude. Um, and I think we need to get with the programme and understand that we are a bit of a mess as far as egos go. Yes, probably the, the thing we think of as self is an illusion. Most of what I've read on the subject suggests that. It is a kind of floating puddle of, of illusion that, that the genetically driven self uses to provide continuity. But so what? You know, I'm fine with that. It's worked for me. I'm 50 going okay. The, this is a process that has millions of years of evolution that has slow engineered it into place and it does work. Okay, so you can take a certain amount of comfort from that. Yeah? You're riding in a vehicle that's relatively safe. And I think we just have to accept that yes, it is inexact, it is probably an illusion, but you, you've got to go with that. Uh, accept it. And as we discover more and more, as science probes more and more, that inexactitude will, will grow. Um, we will become less sure, but you've got to take it with a, you've got to enjoy it. You've got, I mean, uh, Bill Hicks, you know, dead comedian who was a, a great hero of mine back in the day, who said, life is a ride. And I think that's where we come out, certainly where I come out. It's like, yeah, life is a ride. Often doesn't make sense. Uh, it's kind of messy. Maybe you are not really you, uh, but yeah, just try and enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, thank you. So we're going to explore some of these topics in, in more detail. Now, throughout the next 30 minutes, we're going to try and answer three quite specific questions. We're going to try and look at what is the I, what is the self that writes these narratives? And secondly, do these narratives help or inhibit our identity? And finally, we're going to look about what, what we can do. We're going to look forwards, what we can do about this. Are narratives dangerous? How can we avoid them? How can we control them? So starting with our first theme, what is the I? What is it that makes our narratives? Mark, I'm going to put that question to you. Well, I mean, there can be no doubt about the fact, the fact that we exist. You know, I'm not going to get into Descartes or anything right now, but I'm sitting on a chair in a room. I think most of us else are. We can roughly agree on that as reality. But, like I said earlier on, most of our species you know, have evolved zillions of years with this thing called a brain within the company of other people and a world and a context. And that context is based not in the laws of human nature, the laws of physics. You know, stuff happens, you know, and stuff has happened now, it wasn't five minutes ago. So time is a very important dimension in which we live our lives, in which you run into people. So stuff happening is what stories are about. Narrative is another word for story. But like I say, it's context, and a very important context for human beings is the human context. And so stories, there's a storyteller and there's a listener. There always is, otherwise there's no point in having language. And so the listening thing is changing all the time. But there's still a finite me, driven by my emotions and my values and my drives and all that kind of stuff that makes us go on. And so the story we tell us is a kind of a fudge of the best thing that fits the story now. And it's always up for grabs. I mean, 
<laughs> you said, what was it, that line? You said, oh, you apologise. Well, you know, I'm just a guy who makes shit up for a living. You know, we need people to make shit up for a living and sell it to us as part of their story, and the world becomes richer. You know, so the eye is an, is, is an eye struggling to plug into the world. That's what I think. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. So, I'm struggling to... Th- so you believe it's constantly... There isn't, <laughs> is there anything about the eye which is I, I constant? Think, I well, it certainly shouldn't be far from a metaphor from a writer I am now. As the stories go. But I once compared... I wrote a, a novel in which personality could be transferred from body to body. Um, and I think the... The idea was that the, the people had this idea of, of the self as being this kind of solid structure. And the guy's saying to them, well, it's not really, it's like a sand dune. Um, so it is kind of solid in the fact that, you could, yeah, there it is, and you know what a sand dune looks like and so forth. But the point is that over time, influenced by the winds of change or whatever other metaphor you care to reach for, it does shift. It, it moves around, it changes, and uh, it can actu- and, and moves through, through you know, its landscape as well. So... the it's neither one or nor the other. It is, it is solid to the extent that you can perceive it as solid, but it is still eminently changeable. Um, that, that is, in all, in all seriousness, that is the best metaphor I've, I've come across uh, for it. Yeah. 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 A sand dune. The self is like a sand dune. I like that idea. <laughs> John, you would, you would uh, disagree with that. I, I, I think that's overdoing the change. I, I think the best... <laughs> The better metaphor would be would be a tree, which or a plant or, or any other animal, which we know changes enormously. But we have no problem in saying that's the same tree I planted in my garden 20 years ago. The, the identity is absolutely indubitable. The I mean, the, the other thing is that the I, I mean, everyone, the psychiatrist, the author, the philosopher, whoever we are, in evaluating all these issues. W- about how important science is, evolution is, whatever. We're speaking as an answerable, rational self. We couldn't have this discussion but that, that unless would we had a sense of ourselves as taking But, but, but the, f- the, the fact so that we do take that seriously... At, the, that at that kind of meta level, I mean, civilization, I think, is, 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 is the sort of the, devel- the, the, the end result of that. And civilization itself is a bunch of agreed stuff which is incredibly... In, in many ways, incredibly fragile. You know, I mean, I driving here um, on these very narrow roads uh, leading into Hay, there's an agreement going on, part of civilization, that I will drive on the left side of the road, and and that every people coming towards me will be on 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 their left. Yeah, yeah. but it's just an agreement. I mean, it's it's Thankfully there's nothing solid change. there. I can cross the white <laughs> line, I, you know, I, with no problem. But it's something we've agreed to. It's a con- well, again, Gibson, who's a William Gibson, who a great leading light in in my profession and fantastic author. And I mean, he he talked about when he invented cyberspace as a concept. He talks about it as a consensual hallucination. 
And I think that applies pretty much to an awful lot of what we've built as a civilization as well. It is consensual hallucination. So it, that, I don't mean to undermine John's point because it is important, it's massively important, but it doesn't make it any less ephemeral. I think that's the point. But to just look at lives, I mean, I've spent a lot of my time looking to people whose lives have been shattered, or perhaps some would say enhanced, by changes to their brain, to their lives, horrifying experiences, great experiences, and they're more like the sand dune than they are. You know, if a sand dune could think and use language, it might actually continue to have that sense of constancy. We don't know, obviously. I have no idea what it's like to be a sand dune, but what I do know is that, you know, by the end of our lives, we're often radically different from who we were before. Look at our fascination with stories, the return, the revenant, people who come back, Oedipus-like, radically transformed. Okay, Telemachus and the dog recognised him, but no one else did. He was transformed out of all recognition. And I'm saying that we are like the sand dunes. So much can happen. And when you look at mental illness, which eats at the idea of I, you can go on having a life, even though you believe you're now someone else. Do you have any good examples, John, of working as a, as a psychiatrist uh, of people that have changed? Of course, changed? yes. Well, can you give let's us, take, let's can take you give us gen gender reassignation. Let's take psychotic illness of a disintegrating chronic sort, like schizophrenia or manic depression. People were quite happy with the idea that you know, they're in different emotional states and therefore with different access to different sorts of memory. The names they give to themselves are very different. Hamlet says, how stale, weary and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. He's low. The world he sees, and thus informs who he is, is distorted by his emotional state. He changes. But, but the very word distorted suggests... There's, there's something to be distorted. Something to be distorted, and that he, perhaps he could be helped to see things. I mean, it seems to me the, me the very project you're engaged on in trying to help people realise a better self would, would make no sense unless the, if everything was just That's not a random project. flux. To be honest, yeah. I don't really give that much interest to creating a better self. I want to create people who have better, happier lives that rub off positively to other people to get us out of the mess that Western civilization appears to be heading towards because it's very narrow construction of narratives. <laughs> you see, coming back to this idea of the sand dune versus the tree, we're at the level of the cutty sock. <laughs> That's got an identity. Every damn bit of wood in that has now been changed. It didn't win the tea. So these, these aren't living. These well, the examples start. we're using here are not living souls. So let's let's keep the these examples the to living. The sand dune and the tree are both. Does, does a tree and a sand dune have a soul? That's that's a, that's another debate. I think the tree's got Can a soul. Can I just on this final point? Just would like to put <laughs> this into context. You're a psychiatrist. You obviously see a lot of patients who you can control maybe with, with medication, perhaps. Control isn't the word oh, I not use. control, okay. I'm not, I'm not writing change, their story. perhaps. Yeah. Change their narratives, change their perception of themselves. Um, that's a classic example, perhaps, say, of, of how the self can change. And I would just like to put this to John, who, you know, you believe the self is constant. What would, what would you say to that? That, it, you know, are there cases when the self can change? For example, extreme cases in psychiatry where personalities are changed with, with drugs. Of course, I mean, there's no question of denying change. Change, it, our lives are, f are fluid and always developing. But underlying that change, there is an enduring self that can go wrong, that can get messed up, that can be lost in a mess of emotions, or which can become calmer, more rational more focused on the things that matter. And, and we don't write the script. We, don't, we can't create okay. values. Yeah. Yeah. We, we can only pursue oh, things. I, if I, I think we can give it a nudge. We, Sometimes we can very only, big nudge. We can only pursue yeah. things. Hey, if I'm going to go and learn Spanish. 
Yes, but that doesn't... I've been to Madrid. But that doesn't make... Okay, let's finish this point. Finish this point and then we're going to move on to the... Okay, but make this very quick and we're going to move on to our next thing. There are cases... I mean, one that springs to mind immediately. Bravery, you know, which we tend to sort of think of a person as brave. But actually, that's a very, very ephemeral state. There's a case I was reading about not long ago. Man who in a wartime context, was showed incredible bravery and grit. He was injured from vari in various places, was bleeding out, managed to hold his post and fight, fight off uh, the enemy and all the rest of it. Highly decorated man. He was a sergeant major in the British Army. And he was treated, being treated by a doctor who wrote a book about pain. I uh, uh, can't remember the guy's name, Wall, I think. And he said that um, 10 years after the war, um, this guy passed out at the sight of blood. He was just taking, taking blood from him, and he saw it, and it was out cold. And he said, clearly, that man has, has changed significantly since... Maybe he hasn't changed, maybe it's just perceptions of... Uh, no, no, but a man who was capable of maybe losing a litre of his own blood visibly while of, killing uh, other men... What a bravery was changed. ...is now a man who blood taken from his arm. It's not... He's, he's yeah. the same man, but obviously he's changed quite radically. It's not... He's, he's yeah. the same man, but obviously he's changed yeah. quite... Well, it's it's a lovely illustration of a convention about narrative. I think he's getting in the way. It's like a trauma. Oh, I don't think the doctor. I don't. I don't think the doctor was saying that it was as a result of the trauma, trauma in yeah. the future, or symptoms and consequences that explain it. Sure. No, but I'm. I, I, okay. That's I'm interested okay. in we'll trauma as a narrator. <laughs> Earlier on, you used the phrase in the one sentence. You know, that's a really big re-stereotyping <laughs> of me. <laughs> I, mean, uh, I mean, I think, wow, that's a big narrative to thrust on me. Remember, narratives are stories. Hi, I'm a guy. I'm going to pump drugs into you and control your brain. You know? that's, that's kind of scary. <laughs> Some of these things we have to accept are, you know, what language does when it tries to impose order on the world. Richard, I want to ask you one question. We, what you mentioned before one of your books uh, was about... The, the, the featured the theme yeah. of taking a character yeah, the theory and superimposing their character into another um, into another character. What did you have to get your head around? Well, it's to quite, do it, to it's quite interesting that. because actually, the, it's, the I mean, it's, 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 it's not mine. It's a sort of four old science trope: the idea of digitizing. Well, digitizing is a modern way of looking at, it, but taking the mind, abstracting it, and then re-implanting it somewhere else. I mean. It, I think it first showed up in a Star Trek episode in 1950-something. Uh, it's been in science fiction since forever. It, interestingly enough, it, if you go back to the 50s, it was seen in terms almost of a soul, basically. The digital concept is Gibson's. That came along with cyberpunk and the, the understanding of digital science. And it was a new metaphor, if you like, for understanding it. But the funny thing is, the story I ended up telling, uh, which is a sort of rather bloody um, neo-noir type uh, narrative, was, was actually triggered by talking to a Buddhist. Um, because we were arguing about whether you're responsible for things you've done that you can't remember, because Buddhism, at least um, the Buddhism that this guy practiced, says that if you're suffering in this life, it's because you did something in a previous life that, that you've now got to pay for. And my response to that was, fuck off. Uh, you know. And the, the book was really based upon that, the idea of can you punish people for things they can't remember doing. Um, <laughs> well, this is the problem, isn't it? it really so, is. so would I mean, you punish a Nazi war criminal with a, a friend of mine up at Glasgow Uni, Colin Gavahan, who's invented a job for himself, because he, he's actually a lawyer by trade, but he got in early on the bioethics train, and he now basically lectures in, in the legal ramifications of, of where we're going with biotech. And Alzheimer's is one of his, because he says, you could make a will in which you, you wish to be euthanized at the point where your, your, your Alzheimer's self no, can no longer do 
whatever X number of things that you choose. So the problem is, by the time that happens to you, the question is, is that self the same person who wrote the will? And if it's not, then how dare you try and impose the will of this f other person onto this? And he said, because the guy who's got the Alzheimer's, he might actually be relatively happy. You know, yeah. <laughs> yes. I tell you, Terry Pratchett found an interesting way out of that. Was to adopt a co-writer, right, yeah. someone yeah. whom he trusted utterly to help him first with the typing, then with ideas, then yes. with reflection. You know, so in a sense, he deferred. Yes, which his, is you know the pratchetness. Yes. <laughs> it took up location in another mind, in a sense. Yes. You know. Just finally, John, what what do you say to that? The um, uh, well, the, the question so of responsibility for past actions. Yes, and remember. if you can't remember, or if you are some way socially uh, not responsible for it. I mean, the, the whole issue of personal identity is enormously complicated, but uh, often it's used as a way of evading responsibility for what we do here and now. And th our freedom now, if you pass someone in the street asking for money, you know absolutely that you, ha you are free either to give the money or to walk past. There is no getting away from that fundamental uh, no inner knowledge we have of our own freedom. We went we're not necessarily responsible for things we're in early childhood, things we've forgotten. There are all sorts of problems about over time and the future self and so on. But nonetheless, at the present moment, we are, have a responsibility to yes. exercise our freedom. That's all we're answerable for. Although the narratives now available to us through chemistry, for example, can blur that. Prozac made me a subway bomber. You know? the, these ideas that ourselves are being changed by you know, so-called cosmetic psychopharmacology. Know, lipstick changes the appearance of those who wear it, so does Prozac. <laughs> it's a very strange thing. Okay, thank you. Now, I'd like, like you all to thank Mark Salter, John Cottingham, Richard Morgan. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. So what do you think? Is the narrative of the self just a useful tool, or is it a genuine component of what makes us unique? Let us know by tweeting at iai underscore tv with the hashtag philosophy for our times. <laughs>